Well, last week uh, in his message, Charles said a few things that reminded me of a, a message I gave several years ago that dealt with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I've been wanting to revisit that one for a while, actually, and I think this is a good time to do it because I think it fits well with some of the things that Charles talked about last week, and I, I think this will be a good complement to that message. Um, so we'll start off this morning by reading all three accounts of the Garden of Gethsemane uh, because each one, it's, they're not very long, and each one is slightly different, uh, and each one has details that the other accounts don't have. And so it's always good, I think, when you're dealing with something from the Gospels uh, to read every account that you have in the Gospels. That's why we have multiple Gospels, right? Different insights, different perspectives, uh, little details that one person will include that another Gospel writer doesn't. Um, So we'll read all three of these here before we start. The first one is in Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, starting in verse 36. Then Jesus came with them, that is the disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. And Gethsemane literally means oil press, which is a very fitting term. Came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. And the second account is in Mark chapter 14, in verse 32. Pay attention, slightly different wording on some things, some new details. They came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, and here's one of those details that the others don't include. He was saying, Abba, Father, that phrase, Abba, Father, comes out in Mark's gospel. All things are possible for you. 
Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. And then the final one is in Luke chapter 22. Again, some new details here that the others do not bring out. Luke, being a physician, is the only one to mention the drops of blood, his sweat becoming like drops of blood. Luke twenty-two thirty-nine. And he came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow, and said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. One of the hymns that we sometimes sing here is called Lead Me to Calvary. And the chorus of that hymn says this, Lest I forget Gethsemane, lest I forget thine agony, lest I forget thy love for me, lead me to Calvary. And especially think of that first line, Lest I forget Gethsemane. I know it's amazing, isn't it, that we would even have to be exhorted not to forget Gethsemane. And yet we do forget, don't we? In fact, I was trying to think back, you know, it's, it's been several years since I spoke on this, and I was just thinking back, you know, how many times have I even read this section since I spoke on it? How many times have I actively thought about Gethsemane since I spoke on it several, several years ago? Not enough, I know that. Or if we don't forget completely, we can sometimes be guilty of minimizing this section of Scripture. We can sometimes read this account as if it were nothing more than a prelude to the cross, kind of the warm-up before the main event. But that's a serious mistake. Far from being a mere prelude to the cross, what we see here in Gethsemane is utterly unique in the life of Christ, and it's worthy of just as much study and reflection and prayer and worship as any other portion of Scripture, as any other event in the life of Christ. Gethsemane is not merely the warm-up before the main event of the cross. It's part of the main event itself. In fact, I would say that we can't even rightly understand what happened on the cross until we first understand what happened here in the garden. I think you'll see that by the time we're done. 
Imagine how much our understanding of the cross would be diminished if this account of Gethsemane wasn't included in the Gospels. We would still understand, I think, what happened on the cross. There's enough there for that, obviously. But the depth of our insight into the cross would be diminished were it not for Gethsemane and what we see the Lord Jesus Christ going through in the garden. An old preacher, G. Campbell Morgan, he was a preacher in London last century, he said this, As I ponder Gethsemane, through that darkened window, there is a mystic light shining, showing me the terrors of the cross more clearly than I see them, even when I come to Calvary. And I think that's true. We see the terrors of the cross more clearly even in Gethsemane than we do when we actually get to Calvary. It's an interesting thought, but I think there's a lot of truth to that. So this morning, I'd like for us to consider four things from this account of the Garden of Gethsemane. First of all, the place or the setting of the account. Secondly, our Lord's emotional response in the garden. Thirdly, the cup that's mentioned here. And then fourthly, the angel that appears, which is mentioned only in Luke's account of Gethsemane. And then after looking at these four aspects, we'll close with some reflections here and some applications um, from this section. So first of all, the place. This was the garden of Gethsemane. It's a garden that Jesus was in with his disciples. And it's no accident that one of the greatest trials and the greatest triumphs in terms of overcoming adversity in the life of the Lord Jesus took place in a garden. In fact, we can view the entire storyline of the whole Bible as a story of two gardens, the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane. In Eden, the first Adam plunged the entire race of humanity into condemnation and death. And in Gethsemane, the last Adam, as Paul calls Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15, the last Adam agrees to take that condemnation and death upon himself in order to redeem, to purchase a new humanity from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. To say it another way, as one person put it, in Eden, the race that was to come from Adam was lost. In Gethsemane, Christ lost none of them which God had given him, not one of his elect. In Eden, the first Adam rebelled against the will of God, plunging humanity into ruin. In Gethsemane, the last Adam submitted himself in obedience to the will of God in order to rescue humanity. In Eden, the first Adam was cursed with toil and sweat as a result of his disobedience. In Gethsemane, the last Adam toiled in prayer and sweat great drops of blood in order to persevere in obedience to his father and taking the curse upon himself. In Eden, a flaming sword was placed to guard the way to the tree of life. Remember, after Adam and Eve were ejected from the garden, God placed this flaming sword, turning every which way to keep anyone from getting back to the tree of life. So in Eden, a flaming sword was placed to guard the way to the tree of life. And in Gethsemane, the Lord Jesus agreed to be slain with that sword so that the way to the tree of life would be open again. And there's many more such parallels that we can make between the first Adam and the last Adam. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul simply says, In Adam all die, 
so also in Christ all will be made alive. And then in Romans 5, he expands on that a little bit. He says, So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, Jesus' life, death, resurrection, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The obedience of Christ. Two gardens, two atoms, two very different outcomes. And the question for each of us here this morning is, which Adam do you belong to? Which Adam is your representative before God? The first Adam or the last Adam? Are you in Adam or in Christ? Which Adam is going to determine your eternal destiny? All of us, by birth, natural birth, are in the first Adam, right? But you can only get into the last Adam by spiritual rebirth. Secondly, this morning, I want us to consider our Lord's emotional response in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew tells us that after entering the Garden, Jesus took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, and it says he began to be grieved and distressed. And you know what that means. You've felt that, right? I'm talking about emotions here, talking about depths of feeling. He began to be grieved and distressed, anxiety. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And then in Mark's gospel, along those same lines, he says that Jesus began to be very distressed and troubled. The King James says he began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. Sore amazed and very heavy. Now, Jesus had known for quite a while that he was going to die. He mentions it early on in his ministry that he needed to die. He knew that early on. He told the disciples that early on. So if he knew that early in his ministry, why the emotional intensity here all of a sudden in the garden? If he knew all along this was coming if he knew all along that he was going to have to lay down his life for his disciples, then why all of a sudden here now is there this deep distress and anxiety and grief? You might say, well, he knew he was going to die, but it's one thing to know it's coming at some point down the road, and it's another thing to be right on the brink of it. Right? In other words, he's so distraught now because the time for his death is is there to occur. It's the nearness of the event that causes the distress. And there may be an element of that here. I think there probably is. But I think there's more to it than that. I think the answer is more along these lines. Even though Jesus had known for a long time that he was going to suffer and die, the full detail, the full scope of what that suffering would entail were revealed to him progressively over time. And it wasn't until Gethsemane that the Father pulled back the curtain, as it were, and Jesus saw fully for the first time what his suffering and death would mean. 
You see, we often have this idea that Jesus was born as a little baby with basically all of the knowledge that he would have throughout his entire life, even as an adult, and that as he grew up, he just kind of went around mechanically doing the things that he already knew he was going to be doing, just kind of checking them off the list, you know. But that's not the way it was. We know that because Jesus was fully and truly a man. He was fully and truly a human being. He had to learn his alphabet. He had to learn the scriptures. Luke tells us that at 12 years old, Jesus was in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. So he was learning. And then Luke sums up Jesus' early life by saying that Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. That's Luke 2.52. You see, he had to learn. He had to grow in knowledge. He had to increase in wisdom because he was a man, fully God but also fully man. And part of that learning that he did as he grew older had to do with his growing in knowledge and understanding of who he was and of God's will for his life. One theologian, John Murray, said it this way. He said, Our Lord was truly human. In the moment we think of human nature, we must maintain growth, development, and progression. And so of Jesus, we read that he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. God actually became more and more pleased with the Lord Jesus Christ as he walked along in his path of obedience. That's what it says. He increased in favor with God. It's amazing. It doesn't mean God was ever displeased with him, but you can still grow in favor, and he did. If he increased in wisdom, he must have increased in knowledge, and this increase in knowledge must have applied preeminently to his understanding of the Father's will and of the purpose for which he came into the world. And we read about this in Isaiah 51.4. It's a prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples, that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. Now think of the Lord Jesus Christ. Gets up in the morning, reads the scriptures, prays, and he hears from God, God's will for his life that day, just like you and I ought to do, right? He was awakened morning by morning to listen to the Father's voice and to learn the will of the Father. And that will was revealed to Jesus progressively over time as each step of obedience would lead to the next step of obedience. So he had to learn, what, what does God want me to do today? He knew some, obviously, from prophecy and so on, but he had to learn specifics as he walked along with God in the same way that we do. Each step led to the next step of obedience, and the Father's ultimate purpose in sending him into the world became clearer and clearer until in the darkness of that garden, the curtain was finally pulled back all the way, and he could see what it was going to cost for him to undo the failure of the first Adam finally saw it, I think, in full scope, what he was going to have to do. And when he saw fully the depth of the suffering, he began, it says, he began to be very distressed and troubled. 
and deeply grieved to the point of death. You see, he saw something there that he hadn't before, and he began to be grieved and distressed and troubled at that. It hit him, the reality of it. And that leads directly into the third thing here that I want to look at, and that's the cup that's mentioned in all three accounts. And it's obvious when you read all three accounts of Gethsemane, there's one thing that stands out in each of them, and that's this cup. It's central in the Garden of Gethsemane, all three accounts. The cup is central. And it's clear that Jesus' distress in the Garden is directly linked with the cup that he would have to drink. Matthew tells us that it was immediately after saying that he was deeply grieved to the point of death that Jesus immediately begins to pray, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. So he's in distress, he's in agony, and then he prays, Father, let this cup pass. It was the cup that was causing the distress, you see. Now we get used to this because we've heard it so many times, but imagine, try to imagine, if you were reading Matthew's gospel for the first time. You knew nothing about Jesus. You knew nothing about the story of his life and so on. And you're just reading Matthew for the first time. You would be shocked at how Jesus is acting here in the garden. You'd be shocked. Why? Because it's so out of character compared to the rest of his life. Think about this. This is the same Jesus who stood up to the Gadarene demoniac, crazy guy, without batting an eye. Just stands up to this demonized man without batting an eye at This is the same Jesus who publicly rebuked the most powerful religious leaders of his day time and again without breaking a sweat. This is the same Jesus who fell asleep in a boat in the middle of a life-threatening storm. He was just sleeping like a baby in the middle of the storm. And the only reason he woke up was the disciples were screaming bloody murder, fearful of their life. In other words, this guy, this Jesus, is rock solid. He's even keeled. He's always in control. Always. You never have the feeling that something is happening outside of his will. It's just in control, constantly, calm, cool, collected, in control, always, until you get to Gethsemane. And here we see him, as the book of Hebrews says, offering up prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. And all because of a cup. Let this cup pass from me. Does it seem seem strange? What's the deal with this cup? Why is that the source of this agony and distress that the normally rock-solid, even-keeled, calm, cool, and collected Jesus is suddenly in agony over? Well, I think the disciples hearing Jesus pray probably would have picked up on this, being Jewish men, knowing the Old Testament scriptures. They probably would have picked up a little bit on what Jesus was saying here. But for us, I think it's good to go back and to see this for ourselves, what this cup signifies. And we see this in several places. First of all, turn to Psalm 75.
Psalm 75 and verse 8. Actually, let's go back to verse 7. Notice the context here. But God is the judge. So the context here is judgment. God is a judge. Context of judgment. He puts down one and exalts another. For, verse 8, a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed, and he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. So notice the context is judgment, and this cup is, is a cup of judgment that the wicked of the earth have to drink from. Turn to Isaiah 51. Isaiah 51 and verse 17. Rouse yourself, rouse yourself, arise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger, the chalice of reeling you have drained to the dregs. And then skip down to verse 22. Thus says your Lord, the Lord, even your God, who contends for his people, behold, I have taken out of your hand the cup of reeling, the chalice of my anger. You will never drink it. Again, so notice this tie-in here, cup and God's anger, the anger of God, the judgment of God against sin. And then one other one, this comes from the New Testament, but I think it gives us a good insight into this. Revelation chapter 14. Again, we're asking why was the Lord Jesus Christ so distressed about this cup? And I think these verses give us the answer. Revelation 14, verse 9. Notice again, the context is a context of judgment. God is coming in judgment. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast in his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. And there's other passages we could go to, but I think this is sufficient to show what this cup is all about. If we put these passages together, we learn that this cup symbolizes something. And what it symbolizes is the rejection, the condemnation, the anger, and the fierce wrath of God against sinful men. It always shows up in the context of God as judge coming against sinful men with wrath and anger for their sin. It was this wine of the wrath of God, using the Revelation passage there, it was this wine of the wrath of God mixed in full strength 
that Jesus must drink in order to fulfill his ultimate purpose for coming into the world, namely to save his people from their sins by taking those sins upon himself and then suffering in himself the punishment that those sins deserve. He drinks the cup of God's judgment so that you don't have to. That's the point. He satisfies the wrath of God so that you don't have to. But that's what this cup means. That's what it symbolizes. That's what it signifies. And that is why Jesus was in such distress, asking God three times, take it away. If there's any way, Lord, please, Father, take it away. Everything within His sinlessly perfect, holy being recoils in revulsion at the thought of drinking this cup. The thought of bearing our sins in His body on the cross. To quote from 1 Peter 2. The thought of being made sin. 2 Corinthians 5. He made Him to be sin. Amazing verse. He was made to be sin? If Paul didn't say that, we wouldn't want to say that even. That's what Paul said. The thought of being crushed under the weight of God's wrath, the thought of experiencing the outer darkness reserved for those destined to suffer in hell forever, the thought of experiencing something that he had never before experienced throughout all eternity, separation from his Father. All of those things, you see, are part of that cup that he knew he was going to have to drink, cup of judgment. And beloved, we dare not give people the impression, because I've heard this explained sometimes in such a way that you almost give the impression that Jesus was playing mind games when he asked for this cup to pass from him. You know, people say, well, he was God. He, he knew he had to drink the cup. He knows everything. He's God. Therefore, for him to pray like this, for him to ask God to, re, to, to remove this cup is not a real request. Right? He knew he had to drink it. It's not a real request. He's just kind of playing mind games or something. Or people say, well, it couldn't have been that big of a deal for him to drink the cup. After all, he's deity. He's divine. right? It's easy for him. He's God. When you say things like that, you deny his full humanity. You deny the fact that he was, yes, divine, but also 100% a man. You can't imagine a more real and sincere request than the one our Savior made when he cried out, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. He didn't pray that three times because he was playing mind games. But, as it had so many times before, the will of the Son bowed in humble obedience to the Father. He doesn't just say, let this cup pass, right? Yet... Not as I will, God, but as you will. He submits himself to the will of the Father. There's a lot of lessons in that, isn't there, for us? Yet not as I will, but as you will. The cup would be drained. The last Adam would triumph, but not without some outside help. And that brings us to the fourth consideration this morning. And I, to me, this is unbelievable. And that's the angel that appears 
And this appears only in Luke's account. So let's read this once more in Luke chapter 22. Luke 22 and verse 39. And he came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Now this is the second time in the life of Christ when he was so weak that he needed to be ministered to by angels. Does anybody remember the first time? Okay, well, yes, when he was tempted in the, in the wilderness there. He has been fasting 40 days and 40 nights, and the devil comes and tempts him, turn these stones into bread and so on. And he's starving at that point, weak physically, and after he makes it through that trial, defeating the tempter, it says angels came and began to minister to him. <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, angels came and began to minister to him. But here in Gethsemane, it's a little bit different, I think. It's a physical weakness of a different sort. It was physical weakness brought on by the mental and emotional torment of what he was about to suffer in drinking the cup of the wrath of God. That's what caused the angel to appear to strengthen him. And I'd like to read a quote about this. I don't normally read quotes this long in a sermon, but every bit of this needs to be said. And this is from a book by Frederick Leahy called The Cross He Bore, um, which I think is really insightful, particularly on this angel. Here's what he says. Although the prayers of Christ in the garden met with oppressive silence, it does not mean that the Father was indifferent to the Son's anguish or that his prayer was unheeded. Christ's sufferings were an essential part of his satisfaction of divine justice, and the Father was actively involved even when he deprived the Son of the sense of his presence. There was an outstretched hand, his Father's hand, even in the darkness, and Christ knew it. Talking about the appearance of this angel. Initially, the presence of the angel must have brought some modicum of comfort to the sufferer, it came at a moment when unaided human nature could no longer take the strain. It was a critical moment. Christ knew that his sorrow was unto death, but it was not the Father's will that the Savior should die in the garden. And just as after the temptation in the wilderness, angels ministered to him, so now he was strengthened by an angel. How strange is the sight. A creature sent to minister to the Creator. Here the theologians run out of answers, and mercifully so. There is a place for mystery. There is a need for ground on which, in a unique sense, one walks by faith and not by sight. For one fleeting moment, immense joy must have leaped within Christ's soul as the Father's hand touched him. This was a message from home. Heaven was behind him. He was forsaken, but not disowned. His Father was there somewhere in the darkness, 
His loud cries and tears had not been unnoticed. But whatever comfort the angel brought the Savior was transient. The angel's mission was not to bring relief to Christ, but to strengthen him for further and even greater anguish. Anguish quite beyond human experience. It was then that our Lord, being in an agony, prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The angel's presence served to aggravate his suffering. He had to be strengthened, you see, to be able to handle a greater degree of suffering that he had already endured, strengthened by this angel. The angel's presence served to aggravate his suffering. It was in order that the suffering might not only be maintained, but also that it might be intensified, that the angel was sent. The battle must go on. It was too soon to say, finished. The Lamb of God must have the strength of a lion in this struggle. And beloved, Jesus was so physically weakened by the emotional torment of the suffering that lay before him, thought of this cup and what he was going to have to endure. He was so weakened that he needed, that the strength he needed to carry on had to come from outside of himself. And that's, that's amazing. That's staggering. One Scottish theologian said, When I arrive in heaven, first I shall look for the face of my Lord, and then I shall inquire for the angel that came to help my Lord in the hour of his agony in Gethsemane. Let me close then with a few reflections here, and I want to mention four things in particular in closing. Four lessons, applications, whatever you want to call them that I think we can take away from this account of Jesus in Gethsemane. First of all, I think we see here in this account the absolute necessity of the suffering and death of Christ for our salvation. We see the necessity of the suffering and death of Christ for our salvation. In light of the things we've seen this morning, it should be plainly obvious that if there was any other way for God to save his people other than the suffering and death of the Lord Jesus Christ, he would have done it. If there was any other way, he would have done it. Again, Jesus prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. The fact that the cup did not pass from him shows the impossibility of salvation being accomplished any other way. To say it another way, it's unthinkable that the Father would have allowed the Son to suffer as he did were that suffering not absolutely necessary. But in this case, the extremity of the cost points to the necessity of the cost. There was simply no other possibility. Jesus prayed again, My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. The only way for the sins of the children of God to be paid for was for the Lord Jesus to drink the cup of his Father's anger against those sins. It's the only way. And there are people today who accuse Christianity, and maybe you've heard people say things like this, they'll accuse Christianity of being too narrow. You know, it's not right for there to only be one way of salvation. 
only through faith in Jesus Christ. That's too narrow. That's too exclusive. It's not fair that there's only one way. Now, do you realize how insulting it is to say something like that? In light of what we've seen this morning, in light of the infinite lengths that the Father and the Son went to in order to provide any way of salvation? Here's the maker of the universe pleading with his Father regarding the cup of God's wrath. Here's the King of glory sweating drops of blood with his face buried in the dirt. There he is carrying the cross of his own execution then nailed to the cross in agony, crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the Prince of Life breathes his last, and all for the purpose of providing a way of salvation for worms like us. And then someone comes along and says, Yeah, that's nice and all, but can't there be another way to? Right? I need options, God. Where's door number two? That's too narrow. Just one way. That's not fair. That kind of attitude is wicked and it's inexcusable. Do you want to know why there's only one way of salvation? It's because there is only one way of salvation. (laughs) You see what I'm saying? There is only one way. That's why there's only one way. It's not because God is stingy. It's because there isn't any other possibility. He couldn't have done it any other way. Only through the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone. The only way for the cup to pass away was for the Son to drink it. And He did, down to the last drop. So I say again that Gethsemane shows us the necessity, the absolute necessity of the suffering and death of Christ for our salvation. Secondly, I think we see in this account the reality of Christ's humanity, which is easy to forget at times, that he really was a man. But you see here in stark, I think, terms, the reality of his humanity. When John says in John chapter 1 that the Word became flesh, he's not just using a metaphor. He's not just saying something that's a nice picture or figure of speech. The incarnation is not a metaphor. The Son of God really did become flesh. He really did become a man (laughs) with a real physical body, with all of the limitations and the weaknesses that go along with that. He had to learn things. He had to grow. He got thirsty and hungry and tired. And there were even things that he admitted he didn't know. The second the day of his second coming, for example. He was a man. One of Wesley's hymns says, Our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. And I love that that thought. Our God infinite contracted to a span. (laughs) Incomprehensible how he could have done that. Incomprehensibly made man. The incarnation is the greatest miracle that God's ever performed. Think of that line from Come Ye Sinners. 
View him prostrate in the garden. On the ground, your maker lies. On the ground, your maker lies. You want something to ponder for the rest of your life? That's a good thought. On the ground, your maker lies. Here's the maker, the creator, lying prostrate on the ground that he made. Here he is becoming so physically weak as to need the help of a creature that he created in order to strengthen him. As it says in the book of Hebrews, we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels. Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And I pray that the Lord would help us to marvel in a fresh way at the humanity of Christ, the utterly real humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes out in this section of Scripture, I think, clearer than anywhere else. Third application. I think we see here in this section of Scripture that the Lord Jesus Christ can sympathize with our mental and emotional torments. He can sympathize with our mental and emotional torments, or psychological, however you want to say it, mental and emotional torments. When Hebrews 4 says that Jesus is a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, that statement includes the mental and emotional torments that we sometimes find ourselves enduring. Beloved, he knows what it's like to recoil in horror at the prospect of enduring a difficult providence. Have you ever faced that? Difficult providence hits you or you know it's coming. There's that torment. I don't know if I can do this. If I can handle this. He knows. He knows what it's like to suffer such mental anguish that he couldn't even get up off the ground apart from outside help. He knows what that's like. He's been there. For someone to say, God doesn't know what I'm going through, is to blaspheme the Lord Jesus Christ and to deny the reality of his incarnation. Not only does he know what we're going through, but he's endured infinitely worse than we ever could or ever will. If you're a Christian. But even though our sufferings are as nothing compared to his, yet he sympathizes with us fully. And this is amazing to me because it's so unlike how, how I, how we tend to be. You know, when we hear about people talk about the hard things they're going through, you know, we, we tend to think, oh, well, they don't know what I've been through, right? They don't know what I've suffered. You see how unchristlike that attitude is? Just wicked. He endured infinitely worse than we ever could or will, and yet he never, he never looks down his nose at us. He never puts us down when we're struggling. You know, you pathetic Christian. You can't even handle that. Don't you know what I went through? Come on. He never does that. 
He sympathizes with our weaknesses, not chastises, but sympathizes with utmost tenderness and compassion and understanding. We sing that hymn that has that line in there, The great physician now is near, the sympathizing Jesus. He speaks the drooping heart to cheer, oh, hear the voice of Jesus. And that's a title. That's that's what he is. That's what he's like, sympathizing Jesus. And so he can sympathize with our mental and emotional torments. He's been there. He knows. And then lastly, the last thing I think we can take from this is that the love of Christ surpasses knowledge. The love of Christ. How great is the love of Christ for his people that he would willingly suffer the agonies of Gethsemane and Calvary to purchase our redemption. We sing that hymn, I Stand Amazed in the Presence. I just wanted to read through this because I think this captures it perfectly. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. For me it was in the garden, he prayed, not my will, but thine. He had no tears for his own griefs, griefs in terms of sinful griefs as a result of sin. He had no tears for his own griefs, but sweat drops of blood for mine. In pity angels beheld him, and came from the world of light to comfort him in the sorrows he bore for my soul that night. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to to Calvary and suffered and died alone. When with the ransomed in glory his face I at last shall see, t'will be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. And then the chorus, how marvelous, how wonderful in my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Paul says in Ephesians 3 that our Savior's love is a love that surpasses knowledge. And I'm reminded of that every time I read this section of Gethsemane. It surpasses knowledge. How can it be, Lord? How can it be? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? How can it be? In Romans 8, Paul says that this love is so strong that nothing can separate us from it. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you can say, and you should say, like Paul did, the Son of God loved me and gave himself up for me individually. If you were the only person on the face of the earth that God was going to save, Jesus would have gone through the exact same things that he went through did it for each person individually. For me, he endured Gethsemane. For me, he sweat drops of blood for my sins, my particular sins. He laid prostrate on the ground for me. He submitted to drinking the cup of God's wrath for me. For me, he did that. Paul never ceased to be amazed at that love, and neither should we. Some of you have read... Ian Murray's biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones, which is a pretty thick two-volume biography. And there's an account in there 
that occurred near the end of his life. He was visiting Faith Cook, who some of you have probably heard of, maybe read some of her books. I think Singing in the Fire is one. There's a couple of others that she's written. Um, So we kind of know her more so than her husband, but her husband was a pastor. His name was Paul. And at this time, he was under a severe attack of the enemy that was crippling his ministry. And so Lloyd-Jones went to them to visit with them, to encourage them. So he counseled with them and prayed with them. But for faith, the most helpful thing that Lloyd-Jones shared was a five-word sentence that he spoke in passing as he was leaving. And this is how faith related it years later. She said, I suppose the best thing of all that he said to me was just as we parted. Realizing, of course, that we would never meet again on this earth, he grasped my hand warmly and simply said, Remember the love of God. These words, perhaps more than any others, carried me through all the distress of the months that followed. That simple sentence, Remember the love of God, is what carried her through and her husband Paul through this time of distress and trial. And so as we close today, I would say the same thing to you. Remember the love of God. Remember it. Jesus said, just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Abide in it. Get there and stay there. And if you need help in doing that, then go back to the Garden of Gethsemane where you can see His glory and His love on display in a way that few other places in Scripture reveal them. Lest I forget Gethsemane. (laughs) May it never be, right? (laughs) May it never be. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what can we even say to these things? We just thank You. We love You and we want to love You more. We thank You for grace. Thank you for your great love with which you loved us even when we were dead in transgressions. Thank you, Lord. Help us to worship you afresh today from the heart. Thank you for this passage of Scripture. Help each of us to take from it what we ought to today. Lord, and if there's anyone here that does not know you, I pray you'd open their eyes to see that you drunk that cup for them, that their sins, their iniquities, their transgressions, paid for in full, if only they would turn away from their sin and trust you. Lord, help them to do that, I pray, for your glory. Amen. Amen. Let's be dismissed.